<clears throat> I just was reminded this morning um, that by Dixie that um, the human brain does not develop until around 25 or 26 years old. I'm glad to say I'm a little older than that. But I can remember it makes me think back to my childhood and a lot of things that we did before our brains were fully developed. And not just, just my family, the McCalls, but we lived in an area of Corpus where there was just lots and lots of kids, mainly boys. And probably the three families that were most infamous for their stunts um, were the McCalls, the Fowlers, and the Gordons. And, um, and I can remember, you know, the, my friends, the Fowlers, for example, they, they loved to play Evil Knievel. And they would get their bicycles out and make a ramp and line up with trash cans and jump all the trash cans. And when they ran out of trash cans, they just would lay their nephews and nieces down on the sidewalk. And they didn't. <laughs> and I remember another family, the Gordons, they, they were absolutely convinced that their youngest brother could fly. All he needed was a little bit of help. And so they worked diligently on flying lessons for their little brother. About killed him in the process, but they. One time they, they had a sapling in the backyard and they could bend that thing all the way down the tree and put their little brother on it and send him sailing. And he would fly a long way. And um, they even put a parachute on his back one time. And, and he, he, he slammed into the plate glass window of the neighbors behind them and slid down the glass. And they thought, well, we've got to do better. And so they, they built a, a kite big enough for a boy. And they, they built this huge kite down in Corpus. It's very windy. And they strapped their little brother to the kite. And they hauled him up on top of the motor home. And they threw him as high as they could while the others ran with the rope and tried to get him up in the air. He didn't fly. But they had in their minds, little boys can fly with enough help. And all common sense and everything else just kind of went out the window because of what they were fixated on, what, they, what their minds were stuck on. Now, I don't say that to be, be cruel or, or demeaning or anything, but I know that all of us have the same tendency when we come to Scripture on certain passages of Scriptures that we fixate on certain things, and it's difficult to see anything else because of what we're focused on. Chapter 9 of Romans is probably the premier chapter for that, of not looking at everything, but fixating on a couple of points. In particular, this is, is the primary chapter used in Scripture to argue that the sovereignty of God negates the free will of man. There's no question about that that is the main thing that this passage is often used for. I appreciate um, Charles Spurgeon, when somebody asked him one time, and he is, is re- recognized as a strong Calvinist, when somebody asked him one time, how do you reconcile divine sovereignty and human responsibility? His immediate quick answer was, I never try to reconcile friends. So he didn't see the two as being mutually exclusive. He saw them as being friends, friends that we may never understand how they fully relate, but they are not exclusive one to the other. We need to keep in mind with this portion of Scripture as well, that as we've been moving through Romans, and we saw the last two points that Paul made in Romans 8, concerned that nothing will ever separate us from the love of God, and that God works all things together for good. 
I really believe that having said those things so forcibly, so clearly, that Paul now addresses three chapters on the issue of Israel. Because in many people's minds, Israel's example would have negated the truth that Paul had just stated in Romans 8. Nothing separates us from the love of God, and God works all things together for good. Then what about Israel? Because it sure looks like they're not living in the love of God, and it sure doesn't look like that their experience is working for good. And so following on those two statements, and the natural objection that would be raised because of Israel's experience, he will spend three chapters talking about Israel. Very simply, in chapter 9, he talks about Israel in the past. In chapter 10, Israel in the present. In chapter 11, Israel in the future. All of it is about Israel. And he begins by telling us in these first five verses that Israel is not saved, though Israel is chosen. Now, those are two things that are difficult to to reconcile. Israel is chosen of God, but Israel is not saved. Well, I thought if you were chosen, if you were the elect, then you were saved. And Paul's going to show us very clearly that Israel is the elect, the chosen of God. And Israel is not saved. And so then he'll say in the second part of this chapter, the biggest part of it, beginning in verse 6, that God has mercy on whomever he wishes to have mercy. And it's that, that's the part that causes trouble. But then he concludes his chapter with saying, Israel is not saved because, and many would assume because God has mercy on whomever he has mercy, that Israel's not saved because God doesn't want them saved. Remember, Israel is the chosen, verses 1 through 5, but they are not saved. God has mercy on whomever he wishes, verse 6 on through to verse 29. Then why is Israel not saved? And he tells us. Look what he says beginning in verse 30. I'm jumping to the end to Paul's conclusion because, unfortunately, this is a case where we have to start with Paul's conclusion so that we understand everything he said up to this point rightly. Verse 30, what shall we say then that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith? But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why not? In other words, why is Israel not saved? And then he tells us. This is his conclusion to what he has just said, that God has mercy on whomever he wishes to have mercy. Why is Israel not saved? You would assume because God doesn't want them saved. That's not what he says. Because Israel did not pursue it, did not pursue righteousness by faith, but as though it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. Israel is not saved, not because God has not had mercy, not because God has not, does not wish for them to be saved, but Israel is not saved because Israel's choice, not because of God's choice. Yes, God is sovereign, but Paul's conclusion to his own argument here is that God is sovereign and Israel is not saved, not because of the sovereignty of God, but because of the free choice of Israel. Let's look at some of the things here, just going through. That's the overview of the chapter. First part, Roman number one, that, that Israel is chosen but not saved. Roman numeral two, that God has mercy on whomever he wishes. He is absolutely sovereign. And then finally, Roman numeral three, Israel is not saved because of their choice. 
So what does he say here at the beginning? He says, I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and an unceasing grief in my heart. And you think, why is Paul having to lay this out? He's about to tell us that he loves Israel enough that if he could, he would forfeit his own salvation for their salvation. But he has to say, I'm telling you the truth about this. I love Israel. I would die for Israel. I would give my salvation for Israel. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. The Holy Spirit bears me witness. Why all, all of this stuff? Why, why being so, so over the top about his love for Israel? Well, I don't know, but I'm grateful that it's here because there are those that would say that God does not love all people. And here Paul is saying, these people, Israel, he, I love them. I love them enough to forfeit my salvation for them. I love them enough to go to them and to die for them, to give myself in place of them. Which sounds just like Jesus, who gave himself for us, who came to us. And he, and he, and he, and he substituted himself for us. So it's a Christ-like love. And so we see here to a, to a people who are not saved, many of them will never be saved, And Paul says, I love them enough to substitute myself for them. If I could even lose my salvation, that's what he means by, if verse 3, I I could wish that I myself were cursed, separated from Christ, for the sake of my brother and my kinsmen according to the flesh, for the sake of the Jews. Which tells us, by the way, that you cannot will even your own separation from God. Nothing will separate us from God, not even my own choice, my own will. But Paul loves these people. He loves them dearly. It's not possible for him to be separated, accursed. And yet he longs for their salvation just like God does. It is not true that God doesn't love all and desire and wish for their salvation. Or else our love would be greater than God's. That's really the point here. If Paul is loving these people in a love that is greater than God's love, then they can't be true. And I think that's why he has to so clearly and emphatically say, I am not lying. I am telling the truth. And his love by no measure can exceed the love of God. In fact, this is an expression of the love of God. And then, just a sub-point, we understand that being a Christian, being in Christ, does not negate our ethnicity, our, our nationality, our race, it does not negate that. Again, we've made, point, we've made that point before, that being a Christian doesn't mean that you are no longer a Gentile, or that you are no longer a Jew, or that Gentiles have become Jews. We are Gentiles, we are Jews before we become Christians, and we are the same after we become a Christian. And Paul is saying here, as a Christian, I am a Jew, and I love my Jewish brethren. There is nothing about ethnicity, race, that needs to be redeemed. It is not a product of sin. It is to the glory of God. And the scripture says, tells us that people from every race, every tribe, every nation, every language will stand before the throne of God. They will continue to have those distinctives throughout all eternity. It's a good thing. It glorifies God. We know that these Israelites... Those who are Israelites are Israelites according to the flesh. But those who are true Israelite, Paul's going to make the point here, are Israelites not simply according to the flesh, but also according to the Spirit. 
So we look at this and he says, for example, in verse 5, Whose are the fathers and from who is the Christ according to the flesh? So Christ is a Jew according to the flesh. And then he'll say in verse 6, But it is not as though the word of the God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Neither are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac your descendants will be named. His point here is they are Jews according to the flesh, just as Jesus is a Jew according to the flesh. That doesn't mean that they're saved. And so a a true Jew is one who is a Jew according to the flesh and one who is a Jew according to the Spirit, in that he has been born again. And that is the person that that these promises to Israel are primarily focused on, is that remnant of Jewish people, remnant because they are the minority, both Jewish in flesh and Jewish in spirit, in that they have been born again. Every person who has put his faith in Christ is called a child or son of Abraham. But no Christian in Scripture is ever called a Jew. He is never called an Israelite. He is called a son of Abraham. He is never called an Israelite. A true Israelite is one who is an Israelite according to the flesh as well as according to the Spirit. But then here's the main thing. Jews... Israelites are God's chosen. Eight things that God has done to prove his choice of them is that he has, that he has chosen them as the only nation that, that receives his covenant promises in, um, in contrast to all other nations. So eight things. He says, beginning in verse 4, um, he says, "...who are Israelites to whom belong the adoption as sons and the glory and the covenants." and the giving of the law, and the temple service, and the promises, whose are the fathers, and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh. Eight testimonies to the chosen, elect purpose of God for Israel. If that's not enough, we can go over to chapter 11 of of Romans, chapter 11, and verse 28. Speaking again of Israel, he says, From the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are the beloved for the sake of the fathers. They are God's chosen people. As a nation, chosen of God. Enemies in respect to the gospel? Yes. But as far as God's purposes are concerned, they are God's chosen. We also know in Scripture that the chosen, the elect, are not simply Israel. That Christians are called the elect? called the chosen. We also know that Jesus was called elect. We know that angels are sometimes called elect. And even Judas, even Judas was considered to be elect, chosen. Jesus says, the twelve of you I have chosen, and yet one of you is of the devil. Jesus says, I chose you, I elected all twelve of you, but one of you is not saved. He's of the devil. So we see from these passages, Jesus didn't need to be saved. Angels can't be saved. Israel is not all saved. That even though Christians are elect, much of the time that elect is used in Scripture, it has nothing to do with salvation. It has to do every time with a purpose that God has in mind for the one that He has chosen. Typically has nothing to do with salvation. We see here that these are the most favored people on the planet. God chose them. And yet, 
they are not saved. They have not found righteousness, and as we see at the end of the chapter, not because of God's choice, but by their choice. And again, maybe you say, well, I'm not coming to the right conclusion here about Israel, them not being saved. Paul says he, wants to be, he wished to be accursed, that he could be separated from Christ for their sake. But look at chapter 10 and verse 1. My, brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. They are not saved. And yet there is no doubt they are God's chosen. These chosen people, Listen to some of the ways that Paul describes them in this chapter. He says they are transgressors in chapter 11. He calls them disobedient in chapter 10. He says that they are unbelievers in chapter 11. He says that they refuse to subject themselves to to the righteousness of God in chapter 10 and verse 3. And then as we read in chapter 11, they are, from the standpoint of the gospel, the enemies of Christians. And these are God's chosen. Transgressors, disobedient, unbelievers, not in subjection to the righteousness of God, and enemies of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they are chosen. Elect. We have to hold these things together. God sovereignly chose them, but they are not saved. God sovereignly chose them, and they are living in flat-out rebellion against God. Both things are true. Now, it really starts to get interesting after he's established that. They are elect, they are special, they are dear to the heart of God, and the nation of Israel should be to us as well. Again, how can Paul love these people more than God loves them? He cannot. And if they are the chosen of God and dear to the heart of God, the most favored nation on earth, then our regard for them should be no less than God's. That this is God's chosen nation. That doesn't mean everything they do is right, and Christians shouldn't act like everything that Israel does is right. Much of it is not. But nonetheless, God's chosen nation among all the nations of the world. Chosen, but not saved. And God has mercy on whomever he has mercy. And just highlighting this, because again, we don't have as much time here as, as we'd like to go through this, but in, the, in highlighting that God has mercy on whomever he would have mercy, it raises the question, then again, why is Israel not saved? And again, Paul says, because of their choice, not God's. But look at verse 8. That is, not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. And here seems to be an allusion to what Paul brings up in Galatians, where he talks about the works of the flesh. And he's not just talking about a physical Jew here, but he seems to be even talking more on the sense of, of, of flesh versus promise, of that it's flesh or carnality versus um, a spirit-filled life. And he's saying here that, that flesh is not something that God honors. Just as God did not honor the flesh works of Abraham when he brought through Hagar, Ishmael, into the world. God doesn't honor that. It's a work of the flesh. 
Then look at verse 11. Speaking of the twins that come from Isaac. For though, for though the twins were not yet born and had not yet done good or bad, in order that God's purpose might stand according to his choice, that his choice according to his choice might stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. So again, flesh and works are interjected into this chapter. Verse 16. So then it does not depend upon the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. And again, we say amen to that. And we move through this chapter and we come to verse 30. Why are the Gentiles saved? Because they pursued righteousness by faith. And why are the Jews not saved? Because they pursued it by works. So even in this passage that is telling us God has mercy on whomever He has mercy, it begs the question, then who does He have mercy on? Not on those who are working. Not on the works of the flesh. But God has mercy on those who come before Him with nothing to offer. Well, then salvation is dependent upon what God sees in the individual. And I would beg to differ. Salvation is not something that is compelled by something outside of God. But God, as I noted last week, is compelled by His own nature. And Scripture tells us that the broken and contrite heart, Psalm 51, that God will not despise. I think we can say He cannot despise. Because God has so decreed that in His own heart of love, that He cannot ignore the broken, penitent heart. And it's not because the heart is broken and penitent and God says, that's worthy of my mercy. It's because God is love. And His heart constrains Him to move toward the broken and penitent. He can't do anything otherwise. Why is it that one person can walk down the street and see somebody in need and their heart breaks and they say, I'll do anything I can to help him because he's a human being. And another person walks by the same person in need and says, why does he just pull himself up by his own bootstraps and get a job? Same person in need. And one person walks by and says, I'd do anything I can to help him. And another person walks by and acts like he wasn't even there. It's not the need that compels. It is what is in the person that compels. Something in the one person is compassionate. Something in the other person is lacking in compassion. God is not compelled by my need. God is not compelled by my penitence. God is compelled by His own love. He cannot ignore the broken and contrite heart. Who does God have mercy on? Whoever He wills. But God wills to have mercy on those that do not seek righteousness in any way other than by faith. And God says, I will do everything possible to bring that person to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Because I see a heart, as Second Chronicles 16.9 says, that the eyes of the Lord are searching the earth, looking for the heart that is inclined to Him, that He might strongly support that person. God sees a heart that is inclined, a heart that says, God, there's nothing I have to offer, and I am in need of salvation. And God says, I will show mercy. I can't command the mercy of God. I can't make demands on it. I can't say, God, save me because I'm, because I'm begging for it and therefore I owed it. No. It's like the tax gatherer and the Pharisee standing and, and both, both praying and Pharisees saying, God, I thank you that I'm not like that man. 
And the tax gatherer is beating his chest and saying, God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. And which one does God have mercy on? The scriptures tell us upon the man who saw himself as being unworthy of God's saving grace. Have mercy upon me. And God did. The man who recognizes his need and comes to God as a beggar, God has mercy. Now there are a number of problematic statements here. If we are fixated on one thing, if we are willing to say, I will never be able to fully, in my mind, reconcile sovereignty and free will, then I can accept them both. As I've tried to demonstrate just now, all through this passage, there are statements on choice, human choice, pursuing righteousness either by works or pursuing it by faith. This is not a chapter simply about sovereignty. It's simply not. But if I fixate on that, I will make this passage say something that is contradictory to what Paul's own conclusion is. And his own conclusion. To the, not, to the fact that God is sovereign, is that Israel is not saved because of Israel's choice, not God's choice. They did not pursue it by faith. Some of those problematic things, just very quickly, a little bit of time that we have left. For example, picking it up um, with the twins, where he says um, in verse 12, the older Well, we should read verse 11. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose according to his choice might stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger. It should first of all be noted, which is almost never said anything about. This quote from the book of Genesis was when, when um, Rebecca was wondering, why is, am I hurting so bad with this pregnancy? And God says, you've got two nations inside you. Not just two children, but the first verse that he speaks to her about what's going on, there are two nations inside you. And that why would Paul even quote this verse now talking about individuals where he's been talking about the nation of Israel? Israel as a nation was chosen. And yet not all Israel is saved. Esau as a nation was not chosen. And yet there are members of Esau who were saved. There were Edomites that came from Esau. There were Moabites that came from Esau. And there were saved Edomites and Moabites even though as a nation they were not chosen. So there are unsaved people in the chosen nation of Israel, and there are saved people in the not chosen nations of Moab and Edom that came from Esau. And so he's simply saying here that God, in respect to these nations, there is a nation which he chose, and it was not because they were better, which is a theme that runs all through Scripture. I did not choose you because you were greater. If anything, God says throughout the Old Testament, I chose you because you were nothing. You read Ezekiel 18 and it says you were as a a young girl who had just been thrown away to die in the gutter. And I came along and I found you and you and you were bloody and you were a mess and I picked you up and I bathed you and I raised you and when you were old enough to marry, I married you. There was nothing that you had to offer. 
And I chose you out of my sovereign grace. But not all Israel is saved. On the other hand, there was no other nation that was chosen. And again, it was not because of something that God saw in the person. It was nothing outside of God that compelled him. God was compelled only by his own heart. But this is a statement, not about two individuals. But Genesis would tell us it's about two nations. And then it says in verse 12, Just as it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. And the claim is made that God does not love all people. Again, this was a quote from Genesis. And when we read through this, we see that it's in reference to to Jacob and his two wives of, of Rachel and Leah. And it says in the text that God saw, it's actually before it says God saw, it says that, that, Ra- that Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. Next verse. God saw that Leah was hated. It wasn't a hate of, 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 of malice, a hate of no love. It was a preference to love one more than the other. That, that Jacob preferred Rachel over Leah. He loved Leah less. God saw Leah was hated. It's the same sense in which Jesus says, unless you hate your father and mother, unless you hate brother and sister, unless you hate your own children, then you cannot have any part of me. And then he'll turn around and say, love your neighbor. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Love God. Love your neighbor. This is the cornerstone of the law. There's no one you're not supposed to love. But he says, hate your mom and dad. Hate your, hate your family. And so it's a hate, not in the sense that there is no love. God cannot withhold. God cannot stop being what he is. And God, and God is love. But he loves not all the same. And then it says, there is no injustice with God, is there? God has compassion on whom he has compassion. It does not depend upon man who wills, but on God who has mercy. Verse 17, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. And then we go, there you go. God hardens whomever he wishes. He hardened Pharaoh. Even R.C. Sproul recognizes that the hardening of Pharaoh was probably not by God any more than it was just simply God giving Pharaoh over to the desire of his own heart. Pharaoh made up his mind he was going to resist God no matter what. And it was after that determination that the scripture says that God hardened his heart, not before. And you can go back and read through that, that account in Exodus. And every, it's God hard, first Pharaoh hardened and then God hardened all the way through it. God did not harden Pharaoh's heart contrary to Pharaoh's own choice. The scripture make it clear that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. The word harden can mean to be strengthened or to encourage. God strengthened his heart, Pharaoh's heart, in what he'd already predetermined to do. Even some strong Calvinists, as, as quoted here, like R.C. Sproul, agree that God is not hardening Pharaoh's heart actively, but only passively in the sense of giving it up. By the way, if man is so totally depraved that he cannot have a single thought of what is good unless God first puts it there, then why does a man need to be hardened? If man is as spiritually dead as a corpse is physically dead, then why does God have to harden some individuals if they are totally without any ability to respond to God? 
It doesn't make sense. But we do see God actively hardening people. But he hardens because of what is in their hearts, what they've already determined. Very quickly, if you look at 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul speaks of the hardening that is on Israel. Second Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in verse 14, speaking again of Israel. But their minds were hardened. For until this very day, at the, break, at the reading of the Old Covenant, and the same, the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, read a veil lies over their heart. Verse 16, but whenever a man turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Israel is hard. And God has hardened them. But it was because of their unbelief, their pursuit of righteousness by works. And that hardening will be removed the moment they turn to the Lord in faith. We read more. Next problematic passage. And again, I'm just breezing through these. It says in verse 20, on the con- well, verse 19, you will, who will, you will say to me then, who resists the will of God? Why does he still find fault? For who resists, the will of his, resists his will? That's all one statement by the objector. The second part of that is not by Paul. Paul is saying, no, he is not saying no one resists the will of God. That is what is being presented to him by the objector. Hypothetically, rhetorically. Verse 20. On the contrary, Paul answers, Who are you, O man, who answers back to God? You said no one resists God? That's exactly what you're doing. Men do resist God. Sin is a resistance of God. We can grieve the Spirit of God. We can quench the Spirit of God. We can resist the Spirit of God. There is no verse in Scripture that says that God's grace is irresistible. We resist God's grace every time we sin. It is not God's desire, it is not God's intent, it is not God's creation that we sin. And we do sin. And we do say no to God. Well, what about the potter and clay? Charlie says right here that that we're just like clay in the hands of God and clay can't resist the will of God. That the clay is just there and he's the potter and he can do with us whatever he wishes. Amen. Let's look at the passage that it's quoted from. Jeremiah 18. Jeremiah 18. Again, if we just would not fixate on one thing and look at the scriptures and and let them be their own commentary. Jeremiah 18, beginning in verse 5. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Can I not, O house of Israel, deal with you as this potter does, declares the Lord? Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. Just as he's saying in Romans 9. At one moment I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom. So again, he's not speaking even of individuals, but he's speaking of nations. I might, I might speak to one kingdom, one nation to uproot, to pull down or to destroy it. Then verse 8, if that nation against which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent concerning the calamity I plan to bring upon it. Or at another moment I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to build up or to plant it. If it does evil in my sight by not obeying my voice, then I will think better of the good which I had promised to bless it. So now then, speak to the men of Judah and against the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am fashioning calamity against you and devising a plan against you. 
Oh, turn back each of you from his evil way and reform your ways and your deeds. Yes, I am the potter and you are the clay. And if I determine that I'm going to make, if I'm going to destroy you, you'll be destroyed unless you repent. If I determine I'm going to raise you up, you'll be raised up unless you disobey my voice. And so even in this passage that speaks of the sovereignty of God, it again affirms the free will of man. And then finally, back to chapter 9, verse 22. What if God, although, what if God, although willing to demonstrate His wrath and to make His power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Well, there you go again, Charlie. God in His sovereignty elects people for hell. He creates them, He chooses them for reprobation. Just as He chooses some people for salvation, He chooses others for damnation. Because it pleases God, it is to the glory of God. That is exactly what is many times taught. And this is the verse that is used for that. They are prepared for destruction. Look at it closely. Look at this verse in light of the next verse. He says, again, He's enduring them with much patience, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Look at the next verse. And he did so in order that he might make known his, the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. You see the difference? In verse 22, when it speaks of vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, it does not say God prepared them for wrath. That's not there. One of the strongest Calvinists that I was reading in preparation for this sermon, who believes that God creates people for the sole purpose of sending them to hell. This is what he says about this passage. Paul does not state who it was that prepared these people or made them ripe for destruction. From 9.18, some have drawn the conclusion that it was God. But here in verse 22, we are not told that it was God. And even if it was God, then must we not assume that his action of hardening their hearts and thus preparing them for destruction followed and was a punishment for their own action of hardening themselves? But it is not at all impossible that the the apostle wishes to present a contrast between the present passage and verse 23, where the active agent in verse 23 is mentioned, in order to show that here in verse 22, and he puts in italics for emphasis, the people themselves, in cooperation with Satan, were the active agents in verse 22. This is from a man who believes that God creates people to go to hell. And yet he is saying, this passage does not support that doctrine. Because clearly, it does not say God made them vessels of wrath. In the next verse, it says God makes them vessels of honor. How do you become a vessel of wrath? Keep in mind, Paul's already spoken of wrath in Romans. In the first three chapters, in chapter 1, he says that the wrath of God is being made evident. How is it made evident? And he said, on what basis? Because those who knew God did not honor him as God or give thanks. And so God gave them over. So what brings on the wrath of God? When a person who is not a Christian refuses to honor God or give thanks, then they incur the wrath of God. In chapter 2 of Romans, he says, Do you not realize that your stubborn, unrepentant hearts is storing up wrath in the day of judgment? And so the wrath comes when a person refuses 
to put his faith in Jesus Christ. As John 3, verse 36 says, Jesus speaking there, and he says that, that when, if anyone does not believe in Christ or obey him, the wrath of God abides on him. We make ourselves in league with Satan, vessels of destruction and wrath. God does not. How do we become a vessel of mercy? Look, one more cross-reference, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 20 and 21, is the other New Testament passage that speaks of vessels of honor and vessels of dishonor. 2 Timothy 2, 20 and 21. Now in a large house, there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and of earthenware, and some to honor and some to dishonor. Therefore, if a man cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. And God's process of sanctification is no different than his process for salvation. And our salvation and our sanctification are not the results of our works, but we do make choices to respond to God, to yield to God in faith, or to strive in our own flesh. And he says, you will be a vessel of honor if you cleanse yourself from all these things. You become a vessel of honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. Bottom line, God is absolutely sovereign. Nobody is going to make God save them. Being elect does not necessarily mean salvation. Jesus was elect, didn't need to be saved. Angels are elect, don't need to be saved. Judas was elect and was never saved. Being elect means you've been favored, you've been set apart, God has a purpose for you. We will never approach God based upon even saying, I deserve mercy because I am so needy. No. We don't deserve mercy. But God, being the sovereign God that he is, which means he is not compelled by anything outside of himself, he is nonetheless love. He is both all-powerful and all-loving. I'll finish with one I find disturbing quote. The sinner. This is the belief that God creates people for hell. And there is nothing that they can do about it. The sinner in hell must be asking, God, if you really love me, why didn't you coerce me to believe? You see, in the belief that God's grace is irresistible, then it begs the question, then why doesn't God irresistibly save everyone? And this is a man who advocates that position. The sinner in hell must be asking, God, if you really love me, why didn't you coerce me to believe? I would rather have had my free will violated than to be here in this eternal place in torment. And then he adds, if we we grant that God can save men by, by violating their wills, why then does he not violate everybody's will and bring them all to salvation? And then the writer confesses, the only answer I can give to this question is that I do not know. I have no idea Why God saves some, but not all. He then adds, I don't doubt for a minute that God has the power to save all. Well, then why doesn't he? 
And this same author comes to the conclusion because he does not love all. He is all-powerful, but he is not all-loving. Friends, that is not the God of Scripture. He is all-loving, and he is all-powerful. And God's power is tempered by all of his other attributes. He cannot act in violation to who he is. And if God is love, then the power of God will be manifest in strict accordance with his love and with his justice. And love cannot remain love and coerce anyone. C.S. Lewis said, The irresistible and indisputable are two weapons which the very nature of God's scheme forbids him to use. Merely to override a human will would be for him useless. He cannot ravish. He can only woo. It doesn't remain love and compel people against their will to be saved. And it forces the question, if that's what God can do, then why doesn't he do it with everyone? And I would answer, God, who is love, cannot force people to be saved. He cannot use his power in that way because it's no longer love. He is all-loving and he is all-powerful. Nobody will be saved by their works or their will. They'll be saved by the will of God. And who does God have mercy upon? Because of his own nature, he has mercy upon those who recognize they have no standing whatsoever before God. And they cry out to God, have mercy upon me. Israel is not saved. Israel is not saved. Why not? Paul's own conclusion, because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. I pray that as we approach a passage like this again, we wouldn't just use it as a battleground for taking our our stand and, and fighting. But that our hearts will be encouraged. We have to keep in mind when Paul finishes these three chapters, he's going to start. He's going to he's going to conclude with one of the one of the finest doxologies in all of Scripture. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are His judgments, unfathomable His ways! Who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become His counselor, or who has first given to Him that it might be paid back again? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. That's the conclusion Paul's leading us to. Not to mark out our territory on sovereignty and free will and Calvinism and Arminianism and all this stuff and miss the whole point. What he's trying to bring us to is that God is good and God is merciful and God will not be blamed when people are not saved. It is their fault. Never God's. When a good and merciful God does not save, it is because of the free choices that we make. Let me close us in prayer. Thank you.